I would like to introduce um, Debbie Fondre, museum curator at the Rupp Museum in Buffalo Grove. Uh, she will be speaking on ballots, babes, and beer, and she'll be exploring the relationship between women's suffrage and prohibition in Illinois, how the desire for prohibition sparked women's interest in voting, and also fueled the drinking opposition. Please help me in welcoming Debbie. Okay, well, you got sort of a preview of one of my main things. We're talking about ballots, babes, and beer, and it will be not quite as Lake County specific as everything you just heard, but along the same lines, and in this case, how prohibition and the interest in prohibition was so strongly related to the women's suffrage movement. And so we'll start actually during the Civil War. There had been interest in women getting suffrage before the Civil War, but a lot of that was sort of put on hold during the course of the Civil War when the women, both in Illinois and Lake County and all over, became much, much, much more focused on the war effort and different things they could do to focus their efforts at that. Um, you have a picture of the women's U.S. Women's Sanitary Commission here, which is one of the first times that women organized and were actually put in charge of things, the Sanitary Commission actually got recognized and chartered by the, the federal government during the Civil War, and it was an organization run by women supporting the troops. The thing I want to talk about is not the role it played in the Civil War, but actually the role it played in allowing women to develop their organizational skills and also to think about what happens next because those experiences they had during the Civil War didn't leave when the Civil War ended. And in fact, after that, when it was done and Illinois and the rest of the country were grappling on how to assimilate and accommodate all these newly freed slaves and what it actually means to be a citizen, um, the people who had been working as abolitionists, the people who had been working as part of the U.S. Sanitary Commission, these strong, active, interested women realized they were talking about rights for freed slaves that they didn't have themselves. And so the first true push to get women to be able to vote in Illinois on a, on a massive level, not just on a philosophical level, came when Illinois was making its new constitution after the Civil War. And there was a strong movement led by Frances Willard, who would later be doing other things, but originally started out very much as a mover and shaker in the women's suffrage movement. One of her great quotes from this time is that it is ridiculous that a boy of 25 should be able to vote and his mother cannot. And so they had a huge push to get women to be able to vote at that time. If we were rewriting the Illinois Constitution, let's just make suffrage available for everybody. That didn't work. And that was a twofold blow because not only could women not vote, but part of the deal and part of the maneuvering to get that first Constitution passed in Illinois, politics hasn't changed too much, was that there would be no amendments to that Illinois Constitution for the next 20 years. So not only were women not added in the voter rolls, but they couldn't fix that in a global way for another 20 years. 
That doesn't mean they gave up. That means they started to approach it in a different way. And one of the ways that Al talked about earlier was the idea of local option. Okay, women can't vote in everything, but we can certainly make an argument that there are some issues that are so important, so critical to family and the home that women ought to be allowed to work on that and, and vote in those elections. And so that is what the suffrage advocates started to press. They decided to narrow the issue and focus the issue and say, okay, we can't vote in all of it, but let's concentrate on getting us able to vote in local options. And in one way, that was good. Frances Willard headed up that movement. This is also when she was becoming part of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She was the president of it. And this was a smart and organized woman. Before that, she had been the first female dean of the Women's College at Northwestern University. Went on to lead the Women's Christian Temperance Union and to agitate for women's right to vote in local option elections in Illinois. This worked because you were able to convince people who normally wouldn't think of themselves as suffrage voters that, well, they might not actually have been all that interested in voting, but they were very interested in the temperance movement. They felt like that was an issue they could get behind. This is also when temperance and women's voting and, and prohibition and women's voting started to be linked in a fight because also there were plenty of voters on the other side who might not have objected to women getting the vote, but if the very first thing they were going to do was vote the town dry, <laughs> then maybe we could just hold off on giving y'all that right for right now. And it became a way to both bring people to the cause and it also was a way that um, the opposition got energized as well. So it, it was truly uh, an interesting partnership, temperance and women getting the right to vote, where it gained you a lot of followers and it also gained you a lot of opposition. Frances Willard was very good at organizing and there was a real movement and a lot of people bought in. Not only did they join the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which became national and international and organized, but it is more, and we have different of the advertisements of the times. You have wet for the saloon owner's sake, um, dry for the sake of home and the family, and then uh, my favorite temperance, Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, bit of literature, uh, their song, which is, the lips that touch liquor shall never touch mine. Um, and we do have protests and parades. So as, as was mentioned earlier, there were different parades. Um, this is a boys or beer, which is the sign um, in a temperance parade in downtown Waukegan. You have this going on. You have them collecting petitions. By 1879, Frances Willard was the first person to, the first woman to be invited to speak in front of the Illinois General Assembly and in her role as president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And when she did that, she argued for women's right to vote in local option elections. And she presented 
the legislators with petitions signed by 180,000 people to allow women to vote. And in fact, she had a great sense of political theater because not only did she present the petitions, this is a, a picture of you know, what she would have seen, but all around in the balcony there, she had her supporters stationed. So when she presented the, the petitions, they were up there with the signatures on a roll, and they dropped the roll, so it fell from the balcony <laughs> to the floor, which was impressive, but the answer was no. The, the, the Illinois state legislature did not prefer to have women voting in local option elections for various reasons. That did not discourage the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the people, the people associated with them from going back and asking again. So they would ask for women to get the right to vote in local option elections for, from one governor to the next governor, to the next governor. You guys see a pattern here, right? <laughs> to the next governor. Every new governor, Francis Willard would go down to Springfield and present the argument of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, would present the supporting petitions. We have more governors coming. Nobody said yes. And that pattern continued for nine governors. One of these governors stayed, served two terms. And so one of the reasons is why was it not working and how much of an issue was that? So you had the people who were part of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, part of the idea that you should have prohibition and they also wanted suffrage so that they would able, be able to vote. However, if you are unsuccessful nine governors in a row, it becomes time to maybe think about changing your strategy. At the same time, the Illinois General Assembly was still electing the senators we have. People did not get to vote for their senators yet. It was becoming more and more obvious that as we got to the progressive era, temperance was still an issue, but more reforms and ideas were becoming more common. Lots of these were associated with other things that the Women's Christian Temperance Union did, but pure food and drug laws, antitrust laws, child labor laws, settlement houses, minimum wage, workmen's compensation, women's suffrage, all started to go together. What women realized was that they might be interested in any of those issues, and temperance was still very much one of them, but you weren't going to be able to accomplish anything you wanted to unless you were able to vote. So now the suffrage movement was growing, hopefully, beyond just being associated with prohibition, but was also talking about other social reforms and social changes. And this got more converts to the cause, Unfortunately, it also brought up more people against the cause because for the 20, 30 years, it was mainly considered a women who wanted suffrage were women who wanted suffrage so that they would be able to vote in local option elections. So that history was so intertwined that 
even now more social issues made people join the cause, it still did not divorce them in the heads of the rest of the male voting public. This is the age of women's clubs who also got involved in this, and so now you're beginning to see local women's clubs on lots of different issues support women's suffrage, temperance in different areas. Um, I love the example in Highland Park, they were not only sending people to voting demonstrations, they were also paying for the first female police officer in the Highland Park, so they were, I want to know more about that story, but they were doing things on lots of different levels, and you had new people in charge of sort of the messaging, so that now women's suffrage was not only about temperance, it was about protecting the home and family. So votes for mothers, politics governs even the purity of the milk supply, it is not outside the home, but inside the baby. Um, so you have that, and you also have the idea that was very popular in Illinois and would help with different local elections too, that it could be women's job to clean up politics so that I can handle, the. she's got both a cradle and a ballot box. I can handle both, says the lady, that, you know, Politics had gotten so dirty. One of the arguments was politics was too dirty. Women shouldn't be able to vote. The other argument that they offered in return is politics is so dirty because women haven't been able to vote. So at least let's get what we can. Now, part of that was still local option elections, but it began to be more than that. And this is because the Illinois Equal Suffrage Association getting a new president. Her name was Grace Wilbur Trout. Um, this is the picture of her in sort of one of her official outfits as the wife of a prominent businessman in Oak Brook. This is her in her Marching for Women's Votes costume. And she was smart and she realized that whether women's votes were associated just with temperance or whether they were associated with social issues, what they also needed to be was something people thought about statewide. So the next thing she did was get it to be so it is not just a Chicago issue for temperance, it is not just a Waukegan issue, it is not just an Antioch issue, but the idea that you would have, if you were going to pass a state law to get women to be able to vote in anything, you had to convince people all over the state. So the point was to bring the message to the masses. And in 1910, the best way to do that was by car. And so the Illinois Women's Equal Suffrage Association staged an auto barnstorming tour and they were able to go to 16 towns in seven counties in five days. Lake County was on that route and you see them here. They did tour in this open car. There were four women and it was arranged with local suffrage organizations in each town that they hit. Their best goal, the one that I think was fun, was to stop usually by the local train station or the local town square, hopefully when trains were letting people off for commuter time, they did that in Lake Forest by the train station, 
they would pull up, the local organization would have an audience already, and each woman would stand up on the seat of the car and speak from the car, 15 minutes on the economic effect of women voting, 15 minutes on the social effect, 15 minutes on the political effect, and 15 minutes just to get people charged up. And they were actually very successful. Part of the reason we have even this picture to look at is this was them. Following them was also a carload of Tribune reporters because the wife of the owner of the Tribune was interested in women's suffrage. So they got great press coverage, not only in the Tribune, which it started out as a, isn't that cute, look what they're doing, but as they got better audiences all around the state, it became a much more interesting article about following how the women were going out to local towns and trying to get politicians to commit to women's suffrage before they left. So they'd get the crowds charged up, they'd get the people charged up, and they'd try to get some sort of verbal commitment from the local politicians. And it made it more about getting the vote instead of about prohibition. So they were trying to expand the message. The first tour was so successful in northern Illinois that they subsequently did tours in southern and central Illinois to try and get more support and show people that this was not just a Chicago thing, this was not just a larger town kind of thing. Every once in a while, they would test the waters. This was a ballot box used in Chicago. Do you approve of extending suffrage to women? Is what it says on the front. At the moment when they tried that test vote, the answer was no. And so they knew that there was still more opposition. And the primary opposition was the people who were afraid women were going to essentially vote in prohibition. Even though they were trying to expand the message so that they covered more issues and different issues and social issues and just civil rights kind of issues, the truth of the matter was that women's suffrage and prohibition were like cross fingers. They had been intertwined for, at this point, nearly 40 years, and that wasn't going to change in the hearts and minds of the people. There was a good reason for that, too. And so they were going all over the state and trying to work with politicians all over the state. Grace Wilbur Trout was very good at identifying the people who already supported women getting the right to vote, the legislators that were on the fence, and the ones that they knew would never support women getting the right to vote. And so she had her organization begin to do research on the swing politicians. They weren't even going to try to convince the people who they knew it wouldn't work. There was plenty of opposition. Mr. Roeder, vote no on women's suffrage. The ballot will secure a woman no right that she needs and does not possess already. I also like this one. Danger, women's suffrage would double the irresponsible vote. It is a menace to the home, men's employment, and to all business. So one of the questions that comes up if you hear about it is people were upset about saloons. People were upset about taverns. People were upset about men drinking away all their paycheck. And one of the questions people ask sometimes, and that we looked into too was, was there really something to be upset about? There was a big change. This is an actual interior Chicago Tavern shot, but there was a change in a whole bunch of different ways. 
Diana and Al mentioned a lot of the immigrant population and how that was a different part of the culture. There was also some technical changes. So one of the interesting facts was in 1875, the national average for drinking, the average person was drinking six and a half gallons of beer per year. You could start dividing out. That doesn't sound like too much. By the time we reached 1910, that amount had grown to 20 gallons of beer per year. And so anytime you triple your consumption of beer per capita per year, that is indeed a significant change in the amount people are drinking. One of the reasons is that the cost to produce beer got a lot cheaper. So technical advances in the production of beer made it a lot cheaper to produce, hence a lot cheaper to sell, hence a lot cheaper to buy. So one of the reasons people were drinking more beer was they could afford more beer. And it was people could not only produce it locally, you had national breweries who were actually selling to markets all over now. So the beer was cheaper, it was more available, but there were some other things involved too. And one of the fun documents that we found doing research was that there were sociology was just developing as a university science at the time. And so one of uh, the Chicago Theological Seminary sent budding sociologists out into the wards to, dis to actually take a survey of one of the wards in Chicago um, and find out are people just waving their hands and flapping about how much drinking is going on? What actually is going on? And so they put boots on the ground and walked out into a ward and surveyed how many saloons there are, what was going on in the saloons, and what benefits people were getting out of them, aside from the obvious, I'm having a beer. Um, and they found some really fascinating things. First of all, there were an astounding number of saloons. You guys heard about all the different saloons. You know, you're talking about 60-some six, saloons in Waukegan easily and different numbers from there. And even if you think of Waukegan today, you're like, that's a lot of taverns. <laughs> there were, in some Chicago wards, there were over 600 saloons in that ward. People went in, and so not only were you able to get a beer at the saloon, about, according to the sociologist survey, about 30% of the saloons had working girls who were plying their trade at the saloon. It was also the site of a free lunch. There are some uh, amazing figures about the food that saloon keepers were putting out. No, so you did have to pay for the beer, but at least in some of these bars, there was such a thing as a free lunch. So, and that all the, they even have a count, and so it was mostly pickled eggs and sandwiches, but it was a place where you could get a free lunch and you could get a beer. The sociologist noted that in many places, the saloon served as sort of a default employment agency because people who were out of work could what we would call network today about what jobs were available. So it was a place to make connections, it was a place to make community, especially if you were in Chicago, in tenement housing, it was a place to socialize that you did not necessarily have yourself in, in your small apartment. So it served as unemployment, it served resources, it served 
literally as free food. Um, it was also many times the only place in town that had indoor plumbing, which would be a benefit, at least in this survey of the time. So that was the city saloon, and the sociologists were really surprised by some of these additional benefits that kind of came from the existence of saloons. They didn't come down one way or another and say, well, we think saloons are a good thing, but it was interesting that they actually went out there and sort of looked around to say, okay, this many saloons is a lot of saloons, so what is keeping them all going, and what are people getting out of it? So it wasn't just the drinking, it was very much also ethnic neighborhood based, so that people were able to, your recent immigrants were able to congregate and sort of learn about the society and still feel comfortable. It was also ethnically centered once they got out into the suburbs, because like any good sociologist, they decided they would compare what people did in the suburbs to what people did in the city. And they discovered that the beer gardens out in the suburbs were a far different animal than the city saloons. And so some of those were actually family places. People would come with their family. There was, it was a chance to socialize with your neighbors. It was a chance to be outdoors. A lot of times there was free entertainment for part of the day at the beer gardens. And so prohibition in the predominantly German area of Buffalo Grove, where the Route Museum is located, was a much harder sell because the idea that drinking beer was an evil was not associated with what was going on with the beer gardens locally. So prohibition was city versus suburban. It was also your ethnic tradition. And so the more you had um, need for it, uh, it was sometimes a harder sell, but it was still very much linked together that women's suffrage was going to equal prohibition. The person who organized to fight this, who became one of the main organizers of the opposition, was Anton Cermak, who would later become mayor of Chicago. This was one of his first early political organizing opportunities, and he did it as the chairman of the United Societies. And the United Societies were a group of, it was an umbrella organization for ethnic societies, mainly in Chicago, so he himself was Czech, but also Czech and Polish and other things. It was United Societies. The temperance and prohibition movement said it's basically the United Society of Brewers, which, which they denied, but looking at the records, there were 13 different representatives from breweries and um, saloon keepers and beer producers on the board of the United Societies, so it was indeed United Societies of people who were very, very strongly anti-prohibition. And so he was the one who organized them, and they made it just like women wanted to make local option about choice in one issue. They wanted to, they, they also thought local option was a choice, and they, they really didn't want prohibition. But he organized it, and it also had overtones, and one of the things where it was interesting about thinking about getting prohibition in Waukegan versus getting prohibition in, say, Fox Lake, was the different attitude towards your ethnic population and whether or not you thought maybe they should be allowed to drink or maybe you thought that this was part of the thing that was making your city more difficult than it was. 
So Anton Cermak was in charge, he was one of the people who led the main charge against women getting the right to vote, specifically because they were afraid women would vote in prohibition. And so it became the political issue that would make him, and by 1910, 1912, he and um, Grace Wilbur Trout were basically opposing each other on a statewide level and maneuvering on a statewide level to try to get their point across. And in 1913, Illinois got a new governor, um, Governor Dunn, and it was one of the most diverse, politically speaking, legislatures we've had before or since because it included Democrats, Republicans, progressives, and three communists. And so the Illinois Equal Suffrage Association knew that this would be the right body of lawmakers that they could possibly get their law through. Plus they had been working out in every county in Illinois in order to work on suffrage getting passed and they thought it might be the time. Um, Anton Cermak knew that this was gonna be a fight so they ramped up as well. So not only did you have Edwin Dunn become governor, you had a brand new untested Illinois Speaker of the House. And so he was a political newbie so both sides thought maybe he would be someone that they could get to. Not only was it a very diverse set of legislators, but they had a lot to get through because like I said earlier, at this point, your Illinois legislature was still electing the senators from Illinois. That process had been found to be so corrupted from the previous election that they vacated the senator's appointment and had to reelect a new one because it had been so corrupted. So the first part of the Governor Dunn's new administration, the first weeks were taken up with electing a new senator Another three weeks of wrangling was over who would be the Speaker of the House because there were so many constituencies and so many. And then you finally got William McKinley, not the President, but the new Speaker of the House in Illinois who was politically new but interested and available to think about women getting suffrage. And so Grace Wilbur Trout and Anton Cermak both said, all right, this is, this is our chance. Um, and went to Governor Dunn, and Governor Dunn said, well, I'd be interested in, if, if you get the bill to my desk, I will sign it, but you're gonna have to do everything else. And Grace Wilbertrout said, fine, they'd been working on people throughout Illinois at the time, and so they got a, a friendly legislator to introduce it in committee, and then they had to convince the brand new Speaker of the House, McKinley, to make sure that it would come to a vote. Anton Cermak knew that this was a fight and so there he began to publish newsletters that would show up on the legislator's desk every day to remind them of how many people did not want this to happen because if the women got the vote, prohibition was going to happen. And he was very good at blanketing people that way and McKinley actually went to Grace Wilbur Trout and said, basically, what have you got? convince me that I will not commit political suicide by doing this because Cermak's very convincing and we haven't had local option where women could vote yet and what's going to happen? She activated her political network as well and so 
over the course of 48 hours before the first bill was going to come up, he got telephone calls from all over the state every 15 minutes for 48 hours in a row. So she tapped into her network and had people call and prove that this was not just a Chicago thing, this was not just a suburban thing, this was an issue that people felt strongly about all over the state and that women deserve the right to vote and whether or not they wanted to do prohibition should be put on the back burner because they deserve the right to vote. They managed to get that bill passed, so in 1913, women could vote. It became a success in Illinois. It also proved Anton Cermak right and the people who were afraid of women wanting local option and prohibition right because almost immediately upon women getting the vote in Illinois, they did begin to vote things dry. They were the swing vote in a lot of local option elections. They were the swing vote in different counties, not only in Lake County, in making the towns dry. To his credit, Anton Cermak also said, well, okay, I lost that fight, but I still know what I want to do. So immediately upon women getting the right to vote, the United Societies formed a new society, which was the, the Society of Women Anti-Prohibition Voters. So he was, all right, that's okay, now you can vote. Let me talk to you about how fun it is to come to a saloon. Um, and so they went from there. So it was something that was tied together for a long time, um, and it became part of an issue until women could vote, and then after that, they helped support the prohibition movement, but they also were ready to vote on other things. And we thought we would just throw in for fun Clara Colby, who was the first woman to legally vote in Illinois from Libertyville. I know I, I shouldn't be stealing Libertyville's thunder, but she's so fun because she voted and then the newspaper followed her home to take a picture of the first woman voting and her husband was on the porch doing laundry. Um, and he had a fun quote, he was like, well, Mrs. Colby, you know, Mrs. Colby takes care of the house every other day. I figure I can help out with things this day, which in this case, depending on what side of the fence you were on about women voting was either the beginning of the new millennium or the end of the world as we know it. Um, much, much, much later on, one of the Libertyville newspapers did a special about the anniversary of this happening and talked to one of the Colby children who said, well, we can probably let you know now that that would be the first, last, and only time my dad did laundry. Um, and it was, it was more a setup for the newspaper just because they both thought it would be fun. So um, thank you very much. That is part of women getting the right to vote in Illinois and how it ties in with prohibition. And I would be happy to answer any questions if I can, if anyone has any. Thank you. a question per se but you know you had your stats about the six gallons of beer consumed in the 1870s yes the, the stat that also needs to be addressed was how much hard cider were they drinking because what was happening you know water you didn't have safe water you didn't have you know pre-pasteurization your milk wasn't safe so hard cider these were the things consumed 
even by children. I mean, by the time, we had sort of had a nation of alcoholics going on. So it really wasn't the worst thing in the world. And it's not just saloons, it was what you did at home. Yes. Uh, one of the things, I'm sorry, I did forget to mention, but one of the things that was also brought up, which was one of the, so one of the strong anti-prohibition arguments that was floated by the barkeepers and tavern owners and saloon keepers, and I'll just remind people, we didn't have an income tax yet. So uh, one of their strongest arguments when talking to local politicians, and I imagine in a place like Fox Lake or Antioch that depended on tourism especially is, if you cut our business so that people aren't coming to your revenue, you know, we, this was all going on, this, this was a huge source of income for both your local governments and your state government, and that was a very, just like today, your source of revenue is a very, very powerful argument, and politicians are very, very reluctant to do anything that they think might cut in to that source of revenue, especially if you don't have an alternative source put up. And I can imagine that would have been a hard sell then to, well, we are going to close the saloon, but we're going to give you an income tax too, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you had that long list of different issues with the progressive era. Yes. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, were, were any of those issues uh, successful vehicles uh, for women to obtain uh, the opportunity to vote on, on referenda in any state that you know of? Did it happen anywhere? And, and for any um, topic other than suffrage? I mean, other than prohibition. The one thing that people seemed to have success on was getting themselves made part of the educational system. There are a, a lot of fun, and so that was, that was an easy jump in people's minds. So women wanting to improve the educational system was very much something that that also helped with suffrage. And there are some fun instances of Illinois of people being voted onto the school board and voted onto being trustees of, of schools before they could legally vote for themselves to do it. So um, it was temperance and it was schools that seemed to be the ones that were most effective. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Thank you so much.